Welcome to part three and the final part of our special series developed for entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, startups, and particularly today for people who manage teams of developers, product leaders. The question I have for you to begin today's episode is what is it about the top tech product companies such as Amazon, Apple, Google, Netflix, and Tesla? that enables their record of consistent innovation. Most people think that these companies are somehow able to find and attract a level of talent that makes this innovation possible. But the real advantage that these companies have is not so much who they hire, but rather how they enable their people to work together to solve hard problems and create extraordinary products. Today's guest has long worked to reveal the best practices of the most consistently innovative companies in the world. It's a natural companion to his former best-selling book, Inspired. Today's book tackles head-on the reason why most companies fail to truly leverage the potential of their people to innovate. Product leadership. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Empowered Ordinary People, extraordinary products. Marty Kagan, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much. And thanks for inviting me. Marty, it's great to have you on the show. We planned this for quite a long time. And I thought we'd start by giving a bit of context. I want to mention first that I have a copy of this book up for grabs. And I want to give it to somebody who is a product team leader, somebody who will get absolute value out of it. So please do email us admin at the innovation show dot io or sign up to our substack and leave a comment call out who you are and we will pick you out from the crowd i want to give this product it's like a playbook for people who are working as development leads product leaders it's a magnificent book but to give context to this book marty i thought we'd start with your former book inspired because it brought you in directions that you never could have imagined and it also exposed to you some horror stories of what it's really like out there yeah it's true i mean uh, the first book inspired i wrote because i was honestly about 90 plus percent of the companies i was working with were silicon valley companies the companies i grew up with friends were at and I, I wanted to share the practices that were being used by the best teams. And so it was really by and for, you know, good product teams already. And then the surprising thing was that book spread, you know, way outside of Silicon Valley. But I kept hearing from people saying, this is how we want to work, but our managers won't let us. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? Your managers won't let you. Don't they want to be valued like Google? Don't they want to be valued like Amazon? I mean, the greed motive alone, you'd think, would uh, would motivate them to give it a try. But no, they're like, no, that's not how we work at all. And uh, anyway, I started getting invitations way, you know, way beyond the walls of Silicon Valley to go visit these companies. And sure enough... It usually isn't because the managers don't want to do it. It's because they didn't know how. They'd never seen it before. They literally never seen. All they'd ever seen were, you know, sort of top-down Taylorism management that just sort of, I'm the boss. I tell you what to do. And I'm like, do you realize you, you this is why you don't have innovation? Is this? Do you realize this is why your best people don't want to stay? Do you realize that you're not actually solving problems for your customers this way? And it's not like they 
you know, they were very open to that, but they didn't, they didn't know and they didn't know what they needed to do. And so I realized it wasn't enough to share the techniques of the teams. I had to share the techniques of the leaders too. And so that was the motivation for Empowered. Uh, and it, I love that it helped me get out there to a lot more companies all, all around the world. I mean, today, a lot of the coolest innovation is way outside of Silicon Valley. It's everywhere. And to me, that's a very good thing for the world. It's a good thing for, uh, for all of us who actually create products. I felt this next line, Marty, really spoke to any team that's new or essentially new with inside an organization. And I include here, for example, a tech team, an IT team, an innovation team, or even a digital team. They're often badly understood by the rest of the business. And you say what you saw out there, the relationship between the technology teams and the rest of the business is rarely good. The stakeholders and executives have little or no trust in the technology teams. And the people on the technology teams feel like underappreciated mercenaries subservient to the business. So they're being told what to do. They're rarely driven by a vision for something really, truly memorable. This is a huge problem within organizations. It's probably the single most visible difference between how the best companies work and how the rest work. Uh, there's a great quote from Steve Jobs back in the day where he would say, look, we don't hire all these engineers to tell them what to do. We hire these engineers so they can show us what's possible. And, and I try to explain to the leaders, if, if you want to work like you're working, you might as well just hire Accenture because that's what they do, right? They'll build whatever crap you want them to build. And so um, that's not why you hire engineers. That is just fundamentally you're missing the point. So that's a mindset difference, right? That's not, it's not hard to change that. It's just a mindset difference. You have to, you have to really change how you think about the role of technology. Is it there to just serve, you know, run the business? Is it, a, is it a cost, an expense, or is it there to power your business? Uh, is it a profit center? So once you kind of get the leaders to realize that the, the best companies are viewing technology in a whole different light, it's a lot, it starts to make sense to them. And then they start testing it. So they actually start bringing some, you know, engineers to the table to be sort of a first class member of the team. And once they've seen that, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to unsee it. <laughs> they realize now that uh, they they realize what was missing. Many people will be listening to the show Marty saying, "You know what? That's well for Tesla or Netflix or Amazon. They're different types of companies from mine." And what's really happening within so many of the organizations is it's a rewiring of the human skills because I might been a legacy incumbent business that had no technology. And now technology becomes a core enabler of my new business or my business in the new world. And it's this rewiring of the human capability that is often at odds with the rewiring of the technological capabilities within inside the organization. I'd love you to share this. Oh, it's very much a human problem. Uh, one of my partners, his name is Christian Idioti. He's probably the best, most gifted coach I've ever met. But he likes to say, look, all these problems are people problems. <laughs> they just really are. Uh, but it's true. And I, um, you know, since that inspired book came out, which is a long time now, but since that's come out, I have been working with, uh, with lots of non tech native product companies, uh, 
to help them move to what we call the product model or the product operating model. And to me, what's really amazing, just as far as my personal sort of nourishment, <laughs> is seeing these teams from previously, uh, you know, they had no skills at all when it comes to technology, to the same exact people doing truly amazing things. Um, uh, in Brazil, there's a startup uh, that, that came out called Gym Pass, uh, which is now one of the unicorns out of Brazil. But they had uh, a friend of mine came in to run their product organization and build the skills that we've been talking about. And when the pandemic hit, all the gyms closed. The, and, and their business just came to a halt. But because they had these product skills, they actually came out of the pandemic more than double the size of going into it because they they had the skills to solve these problems. I was uh, I, I could just keep going. This is what sort of inspires me. But uh, there's a company in Saudi Arabia, actually part of Sierra Group, and they uh, they were brick and mortar travel agencies. You know, you'll, and uh, the problem was, of course. The borders closed at the pandemic, and luckily for them, about a year before, the company realized that what happened was all these global travel companies, you know them, the, the booking.coms of the world, all these global agencies, they were coming after their business. And so they said, we have to build these skills. And this is a Saudi team. This is about as far away from Silicon Valley as you can get. And uh, they built their skills the borders closed when the pandemic hit. They ended up completely pivoting. They ended up solving problems that still today none of the uh, big global companies have solved. And today they have more than 70% of the market share of their customers. And it's like, how awesome is that? Just, I love those stories. Those are like, it proves that the principles work. And it's the difference is not the people that those companies hire. It's the culture they have. It's how they work together. I'm so glad you said that. And one of the things I found fascinating, Marty, was the fact that you call out that even Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Google, even though they have many similar traits, they have very, very different culture within those organizations. The cultures differ hugely yeah, you know, I've, I've, the, the culture topic is really, um, it's a, it's a messy topic because there's really three kinds of cultures that are at play here. Um, and, and they all contribute for sure. Uh, at the highest level, there's the culture of the countries that they live in, you know, and, uh, you know, okay, Silicon Valley, it's not even Silicon Valley, really. There's companies all over the world, but there's a certain kind of mindset, entrepreneurialism kind of thing that there's really a country culture there or an Israeli country culture or a Chinese country culture, which really does impact how the teams work. Then, of course, the companies have their own distinct cultures, which are really, a, uh, honestly, a function of the founders. The founders really set that culture. And so you look at you know, like Steve Jobs was a particular kind of founder for Apple. Bezos at Amazon, a very different kind of founder. Interestingly, both those two were coached by the same guy, guy named Bill Campbell. And so the result was Bill didn't care that they had different company cultures. He wanted to make sure they had the same product culture. So the third kind of culture really is product culture, which is really about principles. And one of those principles, for example, is 
the single most important role in a product company are your engineers <laughs> uh, because they are the ones that know what's just now possible. And we're, of course, really seeing that right now with the AI wave that's coming through. But we've seen it over and over again with many different enabling technologies. So those are the three kinds of culture. What And, and of course, there's good and challenges with every country culture, with every company culture. So we all have to deal with that. One of the challenges I deal with in certain countries uh, is, you know, it can be difficult for somebody, say an engineer or a product manager to disagree with their manager because culturally that is not necessarily accepted. And of course the whole thing in the product model falls down if you can't respectfully disagree. So you need to be able to have these sort of arguments. So that's an example where country culture can can make things a little trickier. Uh, but even there, we can coach those people on how to do that in a respectful way. And we can coach the managers on how to encourage it. But uh, the most important thing, though, I, and I tell them it's not the country culture, it's not the company culture, it's the product culture. As long as you are adhering to these principles, principles like I already mentioned the engineers, another one is embracing an experimentation mindset which is just humility right if you if you if you think you're the smarter than everybody else in the world then you don't need to test anything and that's actually what a lot of companies make the mistake of doing that's just arrogance but we say look product culture is all about you you there's no way you can know which ideas are going to work and which ones are doesn't matter how smart you are there's no way you can know so a good product culture aspect is you're going to test out your ideas. Now, there's a thousand ways to test out ideas. So that's not the point. The point is, though, do you believe that? Do you believe that most ideas are not going to work and it's our job to test them? As long as we can get that team to believe that, they're good. You highlight three differences between the strongest product companies and the rest, Marty. The first is how the company views the role of technology. The second is the role their product leaders play. And then the third is how the company views the purpose of the product teams, the product managers, the designers, and the engineers. Perhaps we can cover these at a high level, Marty. Sure. Well, I hinted at the purpose before. In, in, if a company is following the product model, they view the purpose of tech as powering the business. They view it literally from a financial point of view as a profit center. On the other hand, if they're one of the old models, sales-driven, stakeholder-driven, feature, whatever you want to call it, but if they're running an old way, they they view tech as a cost center. It's an expense. It's not even a. It's 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 an unfortunate but necessary expense. They don't even like it, uh, and that's why you know they treat their their engineers as as mercenaries. They're like, here's what we need you to build. Just shut up and code kind of thing. And that is, um, uh, so that's that's the first. Uh, the second one is um, what we were also alluding to there where, you know, we look at the teams and the people on the teams, their job. This is one of the things I actually love about Netflix is company culture. Netflix sets the dial on this empowerment idea all the way to 10, all the way to max. They, they believe the way you make good decisions is you push decisions down in the organization. You don't 
have the senior people. You push it down to the teams because the teams are the ones working with the enabling technology every day. The teams are the ones testing with customers every week. They're in the best position to do this. So they say we lead with context, not with control. But that's that's what's meant really by this, this idea of pushing uh, down to the team and letting them do their job. Uh, and the third is, and this is a little counterintuitive to people because there are leaders out there that think the way you get great teams is you hire good people and then you give them lots of space. And and it sounds great, but it doesn't work. <laughs> but it doesn't work because in you need to give the teams not just the sort of room, but you need to give them the context. How are they supposed to make good decisions if they don't understand the strategy, if they don't understand the vision, if they don't understand what other teams are doing? They need a lot of context in order to make the decisions. So it's a little counterintuitive, but we say if you're, if you really want to have empowered teams, you, you don't need less leadership. You need better leadership. One of the things that you see and from talking to CEOs, for example, who kind of go, Hey, Marty, you know, yeah, Amazon, Pixar, whatever, that doesn't apply to us. And, and we see the same thing in innovation culture where they see them as a different type of business, but everybody today is a technology business, whether they want to be or not. This is a huge problem. It's true. And this is, gets to that mindset point we were talking about earlier, but now we're talking really about the mindset of the leaders. Initially, people didn't say uh, so much Amazon and Google. They would say, oh, well, it's a pure technology company because they would point at a company like an Oracle or like a... Um, what would be a good example, actually, like an Amazon AWS. And they'd say, that's true technology. They're selling technology. But I would point out, look, mostly what they do is they don't sell technology. Uh, AWS is an example. Google Cloud is an example. But look at all the other things of Google. Those aren't technology products. Those are regular consumer products for email, for video uh, viewing, for whatever. And so, or Amazon to actually buy things. It's a retailer. So it's not about being technology. It's about those companies have a different view on how to use technology to run their business. And that's, you know, look at it. Maybe one of the easiest examples is just look at how Tesla uses technology in its cars and compare that to a typical American car company, Ford, General Motors, you know, these companies, they, they do have a little technology. It's not to run like the entertainment system or something, but it's nothing like Tesla does. And look at Tesla, the, um, it's updating its software constantly. How many cars do you know we're doing that, for example? Uh, and it's not just one of the companies I criticize actually in the book empowered because it was so infuriating to me is the biggest airplane company in the world, Boeing and Boeing. When I found out that literally their flight control software, this is the most important technology on the plane was outsourced, <laughs> literally outsourced the engineering. I, I'm like, and of course, that led us sadly to, uh, tragically to deaths because planes crashed in the world and people died because they had outsourced. It's not because of the poor people in India that it was outsourced to. It's because the leaders thought they could save a few dollars and they ended up losing the company billions. Um, 
literally. But worse than the money side, Boeing, that's the crown jewels of Boeing. They should have their best teams working on the safest, most fuel efficient, most comfortable flight control software in the world. <laughs> so this is sort of what happens when a, a, a finance person runs the company rather than a, a product person or an airline person or the same thing happened. I know you're not in the U.S., but a very sad story in the U.S. with Southwest Airlines, which was for many people in the U.S., a favorite airline for many years, founded by an amazing leader that just created a distinct customer experience that people loved. And then over the, you know, the, and then unfortunately the founder retired. And unfortunately the board brought in finance people. And the result has been a con and not and by the way, not without their people telling them this is going to crash into the ground. This is terrible, and it did, and it's just really sad to see. It's such a huge problem that, and you know, I, I worked, I had a, a dev team, very small team in a media company, and we we developed our own apps, and we were always ahead of our competitors, and that then drove more advertising, more audience, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then there was a change in management finance person comes in and his mindset was more, oh, you build it and it's done. And I was like, um, that's not, that's why we have our own in-house development team. We could just buy a product if we want to do that. And that is something that we see in every single company that's struggling with this is that even senior management, when you say, for example, you're reporting to the board and you're like kind of going, yeah, we're, we're on iteration eight of the app. And they're kind of going, when's that thing going to be done? And you're kind of going, never, because it needs to keep being updated, et cetera. And that's the point. And, and as you say, most devs are, are not trusted with inside an organization. And then on top of that, they end up doing business as usual work rather than feature development, rather than driven by a vision of the future. It's uh, one of the things we, we don't talk enough about in the industry is, um, you know, it's not unusual that founders do great things and then eventually retire or start another company. That's, they have their own lives to live. But the problem we don't talk enough about is the board's responsible for replacing that person. And, and so often not realizing what actually got the company to that place in the first place. And so they'll bring in somebody that is not equipped for a tech-powered product company. Let's start moving towards solutions because the book, as I mentioned, is an absolute playbook for a product developer or manager. And even to just even understand, even if you're a developer inside the organization, to actually look and go, what's your boss going through, for example, it's key. And then to even drive a different culture from within. So one of the things I, I that came to mind is, you can be, as a product development team, like a Netflix with inside a blockbuster. You can drive the change from within if you follow all the rules that Marty lays out. And one of the core things you mentioned there, for example, the trillion-dollar coach, Bill Campbell, who has a book by that name, by the way, for people interested in this. And you say in the book and throughout, and I was so interested in this, that one of the core differentiators with the teams that you've seen is the capability to coach the team and then followed by weekly one-to-ones with the people who report to that manager. This was one of those big epiphanies for me. Uh, I started my career as an engineer. 
Uh, and in fact, for the first 10 years, I was a developer. Uh, and I, uh, I were at the time, the company was HP, Hewlett Packard, and I was in their applied research lab for the, this time. And I didn't realize this was unusual, but I worked for there for 10 years and every single day I had at least one manager assigned to help me get better at my job. And that was for 10 years. And sometimes I had more than one because I told my manager I wanted to learn a different area. I wanted to learn design. I wanted to learn product. Uh, and so they arranged a different person to coach me on that. And I thought that was normal because that was normal in this at the time, they were the most consistently innovative company in the world. They were, they had this great reputation. That's why I went to work there. Uh, and then I left and went out more into the real world. Uh, and I kept meeting people and I'm like, where did you learn this stuff? And they said, nobody, you know, uh, and nobody was actually teaching them. And I couldn't really, that was inconceivable to me. And one of the things I've learned is that that's a common trait in the good companies. Uh, people will, I mean, you might have seen um, every year Google does these surveys, you know, to see how they're doing in terms of their morale of their people. And, and on the most recent one, the number one trait of the favorite managers at Google is they are considered a very good coach. The number two trait of a uh, their top rated managers is they are considered an empowering manager, not a micromanager. No surprise. That's because that's what these companies are trying. And by the way, Bill Campbell coached Larry and Sergey, as well as many of the other leaders at Google. So that's not an accident that coaching is so integral. But the truth is, these things are not taught in universities. They're not taught in books generally. And so the way people really learn them is from a manager spending time with them on what they're doing now. How do I do this in a good way? There's a couple of watchouts you mentioned in the book, many, many, many watchouts that you mentioned throughout the book. But one of them is if you're a manager, to be beware of your own insecurities and Many, many of people I know will say they have a bad manager. And what they're usually talking about is, A, the manager will take credit for all their work and won't actually be, be an empowerer, as, as you say. But also, this is very, very common where I, I thought about this and I was like, going, what's driving that? And A, it could be the insecurity of the manager themselves. And B, it could be the culture of the organization where they feel they have to be taking credit for every, everybody else because they don't have time maybe to just focus on coaching people and developing people because they might be, you know, these type of managers who have a role themselves, have loads and loads of stuff to do themselves and then try and fit in coaching and developing people at the same time. That's a kind of messy middle we're in in the world where a manager is supposed to develop people, not do stuff as well as develop people. Yeah, and... In some roles, you can do both. The player coach we talk about, I think that's a powerful thing. Uh, you could relate to that for sure. But it's um, the, the bigger issue is that cultural issue, which is do you incent your managers to develop their people or not? 
is this something that's valued? Uh, I, I mentioned that I spent 10 years first as an engineer. I actually went through the company's engineering leadership training program. It was called the HP way. And it was really their approach to developing strong talent. And we were told as a manager that I would be, I was told that I would be judged, literally evaluated every year by how many people I could get through the promotion process. And of course, in a good, in a product company, you can't just say, like, I can't say to my favorite engineer, I promote you. <laughs> All I can do is get that person ready for promotion and then go to my peers and say, this person I believe is ready. If they agree, because you have to, you know, you want to be fair across the organization. If they agree, then that person's promoted. And I am, I am judged by how many people I get through the, the process because of course the company needs more and more talented skilled people so that's the engine that fuels this if a company actually cares about coaching they will reward coaching one of the other things you talk about and this is when things don't go right so you you hire poorly so maybe you do it in in haste you hire very quickly because you have a hole you need to fill you hire the wrong culture and you talk about the, the need for speed here. You need to act decisively. And this is something that many, many managers will tolerate. They'll tolerate a bad apple in the team. And worse still, if that person's toxic but has really good skills, you point out, it can be even more difficult because you're like kind of going, you know what? I know they're a bit of a jackass, but they have some serious skills and I don't want to lose those skills and then have to find somebody else. This is a real conundrum because we see this all the time in organizations. It is. I hope you don't uh, mind me mentioning the All Blacks, but um, the book, I mean, their culture is pretty amazing. I'm sure you would agree, pretty amazing. And, um, you know, they don't actually use the word assholes, you probably know, but the, they have the no asshole rule, which is um, it doesn't matter if you're a player or a coach. We don't care what kind of skills you might have if you really aren't going to be a part of this team because it's, it's all about the sum of the parts. I mean, <laughs> that's never more true than really in a, in a sporting team. And so they, uh, they have that cultural rule. And I, I learned that the hard way. I came from, you know, in Silicon Valley, it's one of the not good things. There's several, but one of the not good things is a lot of times companies will tolerate assholes. And it really is toxic. And every manager I know has kind of learned that the hard way. <laughs> We've learned it the hard way. It seems like it's going to be easier to keep the person, but it's really not. Uh, and so I think the All Blacks had the right idea there. You really want to work hard. And if you do make a mistake, you want to fix it decisively. Absolutely. And, and one of the ways you talk about doing that then is you hire slowly, you recruit very, very slowly for culture, you know what your culture is and what you're looking for in the first place. That's another thing that's often missing. But so say, for example, that I hire somebody, I have somebody. Now I want to actually help set their objectives. One of the things you talk about that is so, so valuable. And Amazon make no, no bones about sharing this. This is the written narrative. And I'd love if you'd share this with our audience. They've heard of before in different contexts, but I'd love to hear from your mouth and what you're talking about in the context of empowerment. You'll have to stop me if I get on a soapbox about this. This is one of my pet peeves. Uh, but fundamentally, 
what we're trying to coach people to do is think. We're trying to coach people to think. It is amazing the extent people will go to to avoid thinking. <laughs> it's just remarkable. Um, that's one of the things I'm worried about right now with things like ChatGPT because a lot of people are feeling it as a shortcut to thinking. It can actually be used, and some are already using it this way, as a ma an amazing tool to help you think. But it, if it's used as a tool to substitute for thinking, we're in trouble, <laughs> the world. So, um, But the point is, as a, as a manager, you're trying to coach your people to think. And that applies to product managers, designers, engineers, because what we're fundamentally doing is we hire these people to solve hard problems. That's what they're there for. And, um, and that requires thinking. And Amazon learned a long time ago, I mean, really in the early, early days, they learned that they kept making decisions not by the quality of somebody's thought or their argument, but by the charisma of the person. Usually they'll stand up in front of a group with a bunch of pretty PowerPoint slides and they'll wave their hands and they'll say charming things. And everybody will sort of say, yeah, we should do that. And they realize what a terrible way to make decisions. It's completely driven by the wrong factors. So they said, we need to eliminate that. So what we're going to, in fact, they have a no PowerPoint rule, <laughs> which they have, it's still there. I mean, it's not a religious thing, but it's it's still there. What they do is they want, if, they, if they're going to have a meeting, they want it to be meaningful. So, by the way, it's the only large company I've ever found that really knows how to handle meetings and do them well. But this is a big part of it. Say, so, look, we're getting together because we need to make a big decision. We don't want to just guess. We don't want to make it based on the wrong thing. So what we're going to do is whoever is proposing that decision, that solution or to that choice to that decision, we're going to have them write up their reason. They call it a six-pager because in six pages, basically most, most people can read six pages in 20 minutes, which would leave you 60 minutes of a one-hour meeting to discuss. So what they do is they have that person write up their argument. They write up the situation. They write up the data. They write up the recommendation. They write up the reasoning. And I think most importantly, they acknowledge the, the objections that all, almost certainly will be raised. They acknowledge them all in that write-up, and they, and they give their answer to that so that everybody is, feels like, oh, well, they listened to me when we were talking about that last week. She listened to me. She heard me. There's the objection. There's the response. We, you know, hopefully, we've even talked about it. But the point is they can see this all laid out, and now they can say, all right, we're all on, literally on the same page, they, and they do. It's awkward as this sounds. And I'll admit, I've tried to get a lot of other companies to follow this and they don't like it. So, because it's too weird for most people. <laughs> it takes too long for them. They, they, I tried to do it with Innovation Marty as well. And, and very few like to do it because it takes too long for them. This is right. There's two parts to this though. Creating the narrative and then having the one hour meeting. The meeting goes way faster than normal and is way better quality. The part they really don't like, there's two parts they really don't like. The first part is, you're right, it's hard work to write those narratives. It requires actually thinking. And that is painful to a lot of people. 
And one of the ironies I find is the people that need to do it the most are the ones that don't want to do it the most. So I often will really press on somebody. Sometimes it's a condition on me coaching them that they will do this. There's a great quote, which is, if you're right, if you're thinking without writing, you just think you're thinking. <laughs> nice. And I really think that's true. Uh, I obviously I like to write, but Uh, so I have a, a very difficult talk coming up next month. It's a keynote for a new conference. It's a very difficult subject. And I would, uh, the last thing I want to do is put a presentation together and look like an idiot in front of this group. So I force myself to do a written narrative of all my new talks. And I'll show, first of all, I write it out, my reasoning, my argument. Just by writing it out, I realize all kinds of flaws, all kinds of ridiculous things. And I iterate myself and get it better. And then I have several people who I truly trust will always tell me the truth and are, in my opinion, very smart people. So I show it to them. It's a safe space. I know that they, whatever they say to me, it's not personal. They're just trying to help me. And they give me feedback. And I know that once I get that narrative to the point where they say, this is good, easy for me to do the slides, easy for me to do a presentation that really is powerful. And so and I, I also recommend that to the product leader that has to give a strategy presentation to the board of directors. I mean, there are lots of cases where that really is helpful. But fundamentally, it's about getting helping the person to think through hard problems. Absolutely. And, and you know, man, I, I only inter interview on the show authors. And I often get a bit of critique from that from people they kind of go, oh, you know, you're being, you know, whatever, you know, some type of snob or something. And I go, no, the reason is because they've organized their thinking. They have thought about it. They've written a book. Sometimes then when you have somebody on who hasn't, they'll just use quotes from other people's books. <laughs> and you're kind of going, I want to hear your thinking, your thoughts, your experience. And when you've organized it, like you mentioned, it makes it way easier to interview the person. So it's you just get a better interview out of it. But, but speaking of Amazon, let's move on. And I'll use this as a way to segue to vision. There's a quote you, you share, a Jeff Bezos quote, killer quote. You said, at Amazon... A product team has a clear mission. This is Jeff Bezos speaking. Specific goals and needs to be cross-functional, dedicated, and co-located. Why, he says, creativity comes from people's interactions. Inspiration comes from intensive concentration. Just like a startup, the team huddles together in a garage, experimenting, iterating, discussing, debating, trying, and retrying again and again. Now, I, I share that for a couple of reasons. One is this idea of a team together. And then the second is the, the challenge of work from home culture, remote workers, teams that are all scattered all over the world, outsourcing to India, as you mentioned, like Boeing, all this brings up huge challenges and denies a team of those, those collaboration moments, the water cooler moments, the real water cooler moments, not the digital ones, in order to just go, hey, did you hear what happened? In sector 7G. Yeah, this is such a difficult area too. Um, before the pandemic, really all the major leaders were saying the same thing. They saw the innovation that comes from this uh, and the magic of co-located teams. The problem the pandemic 
caused really was that just wasn't an option anymore. So the question was no longer what's the best way to set up for innovation. The question became, how do we make remote work? That's a different question. And uh, and to be clear, in fact, several of the companies I advise are 100% distributed. They were created in the last few years, and they are everybody scattered. And also, I will I will say, because I've been a champion of co-location forever, but I will say I would never want to give up the benefit of what happened in the pandemic, which is now we can get talent everywhere in the world. It really, we're not limited because you know the truth is in Silicon Valley and Seattle and New York it was too it got way too expensive for most of the people who needed to work there lit to live there so it wasn't working it wasn't scaling so that part is awesome but the question then is how do you make this work though how do you get the level of innovation and um for that's what's difficult and you might have seen in the press uh, a lot of those leaders that initially said we're going to embrace work from home have now said, got to come back to the office. Because why? Not because they're trying to be mean, but because innovation slowed way down. That's why. And so, um, and it's not really, it's a little, you have to double click. The building of things doesn't really slow down. In fact, in some cases, I've seen it actually better. It's the discovering of things. It's the actual innovation part of that that's hard because that's where these water cooler things really matter. Uh, if like if you and I are working together, I'm a designer and you're a, a engineer and we go take a walk. <laughs> uh, it's amazing what we can do on that one hour walk <laughs> together talking about this stuff. There are tools that try their best to approximate this, but they're not there yet. Now, things are definitely getting better, and I'm even working with some of the companies that are trying to really, really redefine these tools. And the other thing that's changing that really is not to do with the pandemic, but is AI technology is enabling. AI technology, almost certainly, it's still so early, it's hard to say anything with certainty, but it almost certainly will change the shape of product teams. Uh, it's pretty clear to me that there will be uh, an average product team will need a smaller number of engineers on that team because the tools for engineers are the best of all of them right there. And so we'll be able to change those dynamics and that will have an impact on what we're talking about. A smaller number of smaller teams will make it does make a lot of things easier. So I'm actually well, we're already seeing a burst in innovation and I think that's going to be sustained so very difficult topic. A lot of companies are struggling with this right now. And I try to explain, it's not like they're trying to be mean. They would rather not pay for central offices. <laughs> they're very expensive. They just don't know how to make it work. And it really does. It really does. So proximity of, of the team to each other is important. But you talk about the proximity then of the team to the customer and then to the the company itself and to the stakeholders and to leadership this idea of proximity you look at it from every angle maybe we'll give a high level view of your thoughts from the book yeah because you do need to consider it from every angle because the tools are different to overcome each of those for example one of the bright spots over the last several years has been the tools for testing our ideas and interacting with actual customers 
have got better than they've ever been. In fact, in a lot of cases, they're at least as effective as an in-person session. And that's very powerful, especially because so many of our products are global products and our customers are all over the planet. So the proximity with your customers is less important than it used to be. Um, the proximity with the stakeholders is a tricky one because that really depends on the trust that the teams have with the stakeholders. If the trust is good, that is, they can be in different places. They often are. The trust is not good. It kind of doesn't, then things are bad for a lot of reasons. So you kind of have to look at each of these and consider what the company wants to do. Um, yeah, but so much of this does boil down to trust. You may have noticed even during the pandemic, pandemic, there were two classes of people working remotely. Those that used to work with the people in person and had those relationships and those that were hired since the pandemic started. And it was the latter group that really were not happy in their jobs. I love what you said as well about if if I'm in discovery mode, then being together is, is vital. But if I'm in execution mode and I'm coding, for example, I'm better off being in my cave, <laughs> go down and, you know, I, I often think of it, the movie Avatar, you know, the way it takes ages for them to get into the Avatar body. And, you know, you can't disturb somebody when they're mid coding. And that's what happens so many in organizations tap on the shoulder. Hey, Marty, have you got five minutes? You've destroyed an hour of their work by doing just that very thing. But then you talked about, well, what happens to the person who might be trying to do deep work at home and has young kids That's during the right. pandemic, that was very, very it difficult was. to do. And maybe one of the things they love doing every day is actually meeting somebody in the office for a coffee to, you know, just have that little break from maybe the uh, home and the kids all the time. So there's so much in the context. And again, I want to say Marty covers all these things throughout the book. Marty, I, I hinted at vision and Again, I've kind of picked the questions in this sequence on purpose because to be able to consistently articulate the vision and to cascade it throughout my team and then, as you suggest, have those one-to-one -one coaching sessions, feedback sessions on a regular basis, not wait for that dastardly yearly <laughs> feedback session where I give my annual review, but do it on a regular basis. I need a vision and I need to have actually articulated what somebody's doing, hopefully through the written memo that we talked about earlier on. But the, this overarching vision for the team can truly transform and empower any team. Yeah, it's amazing the the uh, the power of a compelling vision. And, and it's different than the other things we do because it's the one thing we do in the product world that is meant to be persuasive. It's meant to be emotional. Uh, it is literally most of the good product people I know, they join a company because of the vision. They they love the vision. They're like, I want to help that. I want to help do that. And that's very powerful, of course, especially if you're trying to get missionaries and not mercenaries. You want them to be uh, attracted to the purpose of what you're trying to do. And it's um, it's not that hard to take almost anything and explain it in a way that will really help. How is it going to make the lives of your customers better? Even if it's something like financial data, you know, reporting, something not necessarily uh, obviously fun, you can show it. If you, if you show how you're going to make the lives of the people better, it's very compelling. 
And so the, there's a lot, there's an art to this, just like everything. Um, the most common mistake is people confuse it, confuse it with a mission statement. They'll think like, organize the world's information. That's not a vision. That's a mission statement. That was famously for 10 years, Google's mission statement. But the product vision is very different. It's like, how are you going to make my life better? How are you going to really change things for me? And those are things that last for years. I mean, it's usually a minimum of three years. There's a trend right now in the tech industry to go from a five-year vision to a 10-year product vision to think even longer um, because that's that's where some of this magic really comes from, thinking bigger. We don't even know for sure if we're going to be able to pull it off. We just know that we want to. We want to figure it out. It's worth figuring out. There's another great... Jeff Bezos quote, which is uh, be stubborn on your vision, but flexible on the details. The idea is we don't give up on that vision. We keep trying lots. Of, we might have to attack it from 10 different angles, but we're going to keep trying because it's a worthy vision. And on this, by the same token, he's also saying the worst thing you can do is lock yourself into a year's worth of work that you don't even know is going to make a difference. So be flexible on those details. And as he talks about as well, you, you'll learn something. And you talk about this as well. If you're open to the failure that is symbiotic with innovation, you'll be open to the learnings from the distance. I aimed for that. I hit here. But this is what I learned. That's the key part of all this. And good dev teams, as you say, embrace that and lean into it. A couple of more things, Marty, if it's okay. The the first is strategy. You You cover strategy so much and i thought i'd tee you up for strategy <laughs> with something a little bit different this is a little excerpt from one of my favorite shows my guilty pleasure which is south park so i'm going to play a little clip here because you mentioned this clip within <laughs> the book and i went and i got it and i'd love to share it with our audience and then i'll let you take it away and unpack why the heck is aiden sharing this so here we go this is where all our work is done so what are you going to do with all these underpants that you steal Collecting underpants is just phase one. Phase one, collect underpants. So what's phase two? Hey, what's phase two? Phase one, we collect underpants. Yeah, 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 but what about phase two? Well, phase three is profit. Get it? I don't get it. You see, phase one, collect underpants. Phase two, phase three, profit. <laughs> over to you marty yeah you gotta love south park for sure but yeah there's this is what makes them so effective is they, they uh they they see the reality out there yeah and the truth is i tell people all the time the problem in most companies is not that they have a bad product strategy it's that they have no product strategy literally none they they are skipping that step um and it's very clear. And the main reason they're doing that is because instead of having a product strategy, what they're doing is they're just going to each stakeholder, each part of the business and saying, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? So if you want to call it a product strategy, it's pleasing as many of the stakeholders as possible. But that's not a product strategy. And it is a uh, it's a big hole. And one of the things you know I mentioned to you before you know, when I spend time with the CEOs and they're trying to understand the difference between how they've been working and how good product companies work in the product model, I'm like, that is very, very different. In, in the product model, 
we've got a product vision of where we're trying to go. And we have a very intentional data-driven product strategy to help us identify what are the things that really are going to make a difference? What are the things that are going to move the needles for this company? And and once they see that, again, they're like, yeah, we don't do anything like that. At best, what they hope is different stakeholders are doing some of that themselves. But even then, it's been so diluted that there's no like all the wood behind one arrow kind of thing. There's none of that. It's all just diluted and makes usually makes very little difference over the course of a year. And ends up costing the company so much more money, as you identify as well. I, I feel that piece is... Again, it goes back to something we touched on earlier on. You gotta be this. This is a discipline, and this links back to shows we've done before. Bill Owlett, who was last week's show, the idea of disciplined entrepreneurship, discovery-driven planning, which was Rita McGrath's book. You gotta do the work, and I loved what you said here. You might have an epiphany in the shower, but that's only after you've spent hours, days, and weeks studying your data your customers, your enabling, and then the enabling technologies and your industry, because it's, you have got to do that work in order to have the epiphany. But we want the, I often think about like sport, we want the pill rather than having to go through the hard work to actually deserve what you, what you get out of it. And it goes the same for this type of work. You got to do the work. I often refer to this as product sense. People think, um, People think product sense is something you're born with. It's like, oh, this person's got the gift. You know, they've, they've got this gift. They can just see. In fact, a lot of people incorrectly thought, you know, Steve Jobs had this amazing product sense. He just knew what to build. He fought almost every great thing his organization came up with. He had to be convinced what he was great at was looking at a prototype almost every day and telling you all the things that were wrong with that prototype. He was great at that. That's not product sense. So product sense, it comes from what we were talking about. Product sense comes from really studying your customers, studying the competitive landscape, studying the technology and the trends, studying the industry you're in, studying your own organization. It comes from that. Once you've immersed yourself and you really know, it's not actually as hard as people think to know where an industry is going to go. I've been able to do that for a handful of areas that I've had a chance to go deep enough into. But it's just about doing the work. You have to do that work. And then you have that foundation that you need. And that's really what we coach all product people to do is do the work. And you give them the the to-do list as well in this book, which is the beauty of the book. And last question for you, and this is in part nine. And by the way, part 10 of the book, brings everything together but there's so much in there that that's almost like a book in itself for, and you need to read that to get the real sense of it but i'd love to share part nine where you discuss how to establish the necessary collaboration between the product org and the rest of the business because i think this mirrors what happens for example with an innovation team or a transformation team even a hr or D team any type of change agent the idea of collaboration and managing stakeholders, it's a difficult one for many people because sometimes it gets down to politics, but you have a different slant on it. I'd love you to share your advice for our audience because this is so many of them. Yeah, well, first of all, it's really important to acknowledge that 
This is a big change to a company. To move to the product model is a big change. And if you just look at it from the point of view of one of those stakeholders, say the head of finance or the head of marketing or just any of them, head of sales, from their point of view, they're kind of looking at it and say, today I get to control, pull the strings. I get to decide what the engineers are going to build. Going forward, you're saying, I don't get to really do that. Uh, I get to participate, but it's like not all me. I'm So they're going to be coming at this a little nervous. Now, most of the time, they are, they're also kind of desperate because they feel like they know what they've been doing hasn't worked. So they're usually willing to try something. And especially if what often happens at a company is one or two of these stakeholders just join the company and they are coming from a good product company. So they say to their colleagues, I know this sounds weird but you're going to like this a lot better. But fundamentally, I try to coach the product people to be sympathetic to this, that this is, you know, this is a change in control. What we're doing, though, is not, it's not going from the stakeholder to some product person, and now the product person makes all the choices. That's not how it works. What we teach the organization, both of them, is that you're going to need to do this together. And I don't mean that in lip service. I mean very practical, real form of collaboration. The product team's job is not actually to build what the stakeholders want. That's what it used to be. It's to build what the customers really want and need. Now, the customers don't always know they want this. That's the whole different discussion because customers and stakeholders don't know what's possible. That's why technology is so changes the game so much. They don't know what's possible. But our job is to make their customers love our products because they're the ones that are going to buy it. So they have to buy it. But uh, so we want them to love it, but we also need it to work for the business, which is where the real collaboration comes between a product team and these stakeholders. We have to solve this together. Now, initially, there's a lot of back and forth. But over time, as as long as the stakeholders come to believe that the product teams, in particular, what we're talking about here are product managers, as long as they come to believe that those product managers sincerely are trying to meet the needs and constraints of the of the stakeholders. If they think they could that they're dissing them, they're ignoring them, the trust is broken, usually the CEO will be brought in, that's not good. But if they have that trust relationship, as a real example, when I joined uh, early eBay, um, I was uh, introduced. To, they only had one lawyer at the time. It was their chief legal counsel and um, and a, a great guy, a former uh, a former uh, prosecutor, actually. And he um, named Rob Chestnut. He explained to me that there were all these rules for, that came from the tax authority in the U.S. And they had come to an agreement that as long as we followed these rules, we would be taxed in a beneficial way, basically as a marketplace, not as an e-commerce company, which is more detail than most people want. But the truth is it made a very big difference. And so he told me, look, you need to understand these constraints because if we violate them, it's going to just decimate our company's financials. So we have to be sure we don't cross these lines. 
And it took a few months before he trusted me. I mean, I had to read through a bunch of legal opinions and I, and he had to explain to me what certain things meant. Uh, but very quickly, whenever we had an idea, a product idea that even came close to the edge, I would just call him up and say, Rob, I need like 10 minutes. Can I get 10 minutes? I want to show you what we're looking at doing. And most of the time he would go, thank you for showing. We're fine. Go ahead. But once in a while he would say, thank goodness you showed it to me because we can't do this. And here's why. But you know what? Here's what we could do instead. How would this work? And that's once the trust was there. Okay. Now we have, we can all do our job and have a lot of fun, but you have to kind of earn that trust. And so I tell the product teams, you really have to, again, do your homework. You have to listen to what they say. You have to understand what the constraints are. And you have to ask a lot of questions because you're not expect. expect I, I was not expected to be as smart in law as a lawyer or as smart in tax as a tax accountant or as smart in marketing as the marketing leaders. You just need to know what the constraints are, you need to be literate in these areas of the business. And if you respect those, you can actually have a great relationship and together you can do some amazing things. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. And, you know, one of the unhelpful things I think that we hear a lot in innovation, and I'm sure with dev teams as well, is the idea that ask for forgiveness, not for permission, but it destroys trust, especially if you're working with a legacy or an incumbent organization like that. So I love, I absolutely love that you said that. Marty, I know you do keynotes all over the world. We haven't had you in Ireland yet. I'm working on that, man. I know you give remote keynotes as well. Where can people find you to engage you for work, also as a coach or a consultant to bring into their organizations? Where's the best place to find you? Sure. Um, SVPG.com. It stands for Silicon Valley Product Group. SVPG.com. I have a handful of partners. We have all worked together and been product leaders at big companies before. And Mostly what we do is help companies that want to move to this model so they understand what it is and how to move. Do you have a final message for our audience, maybe for the, the head of development, the product leader, maybe that you're speaking to them? It's the person you wrote the book for. What would you say to them if you're stuck in a lift and you had, two, you had 20 seconds? Well, mostly what I'd say, because most people, they do see the benefits of the, uh, the most successful product companies in the world, that just the way they're valued. So they see the prize. What I tell, but most of them are nervous because they've never been there, done that. So it, they're betting their careers. I don't blame them for being nervous. That's the truth. Um, so what I tell them is just run a test. Just run a test. Pick a team or two. Let them try. If it doesn't work better, you haven't lost anything. If it does work better, you'll have a chance to see it in action, make your own opinions, and You'll also, I think, give your company a real chance at being able to survive and thrive into the future. Beautiful, beautiful message to finish. And the book, as I mentioned, I have a copy up for grabs, but I highly recommend it. If you're a, a, a product developer, product leader, get in touch with me. I, I'll, I'll happily give it to you. I want to give it to you. If not, buy a copy. It, it is a Bible for you. It is a playbook for you. The book is empowered ordinary people, extraordinary products. And the author, I want to thank very, very much, Marty Kagan. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Aiden. It was a terrific conversation.